Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Our guest today is award-winning Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Ramin Barani. He's known for such films as Man Push Cart, Chop Shot, and 99 Homes. He's here today to talk about his latest project, Second Chance. In 1969, a bankrupt pizzeria owner, Richard Davis, invented the modern-day bulletproof vest. To prove that it worked, he shot himself point-blank 192 times. Davis then launched Second Chance, which became one of the largest body armor companies in the world. Charming and brash, he directed sensational marketing films, earning him a celebrity status among police and gun owners across the country. But the death of a police officer wearing a Second Chance vest catalyzed Davis's fall and reveals a man full of contradictions cultivated over decades of reckless behavior. The film is called Second Chance, and we're joined today by the director, Ramin Barani. Ramin Barani, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Good to be back. Thank you so much. Uh, how did you get to know Richard Davis? Um, I was editing uh, The White Tiger in 2020, and the producers, Johnny and Daniel from the Vespucci Group, contacted me and presented me story of Richard, which included um, a lot of archival footage of him shooting himself and his, by turns, frightening and humorous marketing videos and movies that he had made, and asked me if I wanted to make a fiction film. They were going to make a doc on their own. And uh, I said, let me think about it. And I reviewed the material over the next week, and I contacted them and said, I'd rather make the doc because it's all there. What would I didn't see what there was to add for me as a fiction storyteller, to what was there already, and that just dove into it from there. Had you made a documentary before? I had only made a couple short docs. I made a short doc about an egg inspector uh, <laughs> with the Mandela Foundation called Lift You Up, and uh, Werner Herzog really liked it and said I should make more. So I made another one uh, called Bloodkin. I think both of those might still be on the Criterion channel. I'm not sure. And Bloodkin was about a young teenager in Texas who murdered his father. And it was an exploration into him and many of the people surrounding him. And then this was the first feature doc, Second Chance. In getting to know Richard Davis, what were the challenges? Was he receptive to this idea? How did how did that how did you approach him? Yeah, the producers had already gotten him on board. And um it's very challenging. I admit I there's a lot about Richard I like. There's things about him I admire. He risked his own life for his invention, the bulletproof vest. It saves thousands of people. Despite all this, I, I don't agree with most of what Richard believes in philosophically. I find some of his beliefs to be, in a way, repugnant. But that doesn't mean I didn't like him still. There was something charming about the guy. And this drew me to him, this, this kind of dual nature that he had. When I went to, to shoot him, to, to shoot the first interviews with Richard, he was very receptive to us. He was very warm, very welcoming, very talkative, but he really wasn't very self-reflexive. And I thought I was going to encounter someone who was going to tell me about the positive things, but also the mistakes that that he had made and 
what he felt about that now, years later, but he didn't. Instead, I was met with a, a kind of a granite wall of cognitive dissonance that had no conception that he had done anything wrong. There were so many myths that he had created that so many people believed. Even when people knew it wasn't true, they still preferred to believe in the illusion because there's something very sad about your illusions dying. Then this self-mythology and self-deception and impunity became started to become more and more what the film was pursuing. Let's talk about his business, the body armor, that he, the business he started, and its relationship to law enforcement, military, sort of the industry itself. But he, as we alluded to in the introduction, became this mythological almost person in this realm. Should we at least might say how he became so mythological? It's because I think, as you alluded to earlier, he shot himself 192 times point blank with guns to prove that his body armor worked. And he filmed all of this. And these films, there was no uh, TikTok back then, or he would have been a TikTok sensation. Um, instead, he was filming them with Super 8 and 16 millimeter later with VHS tapes and beta tapes. And he was sending these film strips, these, these cans of films to police stations across the country. And so cops started to see a man shooting himself. And that's what made them say, oh, my God, I should get that body armor because the inventor believes in it so much he would put a gun to his chest and pull the trigger. And that created a myth around who he was and kind of his strength. His machismo really came out in those movies, which also included you know, models and and weird sense of humor and all kinds of other elements. And he directed these movies and he wrote them and there's eight hours of them. Now you can watch them on YouTube. And I know people that, that I've come to learn about people all over the world, including in France and in Europe who watch his videos on YouTube in a way um, because they're, they're all, some of them are quite funny. Well, the fact that I believe the gun he used in those videos was a 357 Magnum. Am I? Oh, it's I, no joke. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, those are, they call them hand and, cannons. Yeah. And it's, again, I don't agree with his beliefs, but it is incredible that he invented this thing in his basement by himself and risked his life to say that it would work and saved that. He li has literally saved over a thousand lives with that vest. By the way, the, the newsletter that he put out was called Sex and Violence. Yes. She always had a swimsuit model. I love it because it's so American, you know, and there were so many American things about him that interested me. And, yeah. and he was a salesman, which, of course, makes for me goes to Arthur Miller and the, my and even the confidence man by Melville. My interest in the American salesman, you know, the marketeer, the racketeer. I, I like all that. I like all the kind of characters. And there was something about his marketing ability his way with people and the lies and the mythology and the impunity and the wrongdoings that reminded me of the country, the, the larger political scope of our country that, Mike, it's obvious in the film without me having to say it when you see the movie, because we don't say it anyway, but it, to me, it just seemed obvious that the movie was about the political and social fabric of the country and also about gun violence without having to say it. You know. Those films that you refer to, 
they look like Chuck Norris films. Is what they they sort of you can see that they use that as kind of the the blueprint, the template for every Chuck Norris movie or TV show that was ever produced, right? Yeah, sure. Of course, by Dirty Harry, Don Don Siegel is a great director. I mean, the, the Dirty Harry is a is a very well made movie and also has some moral philosophies in it in the main character that I'm not sure we can I don't personally agree with but it, Don Siegel was a good director you mentioned his sort of lack of um lack of reflection on on some of the things that he did some of the things that he as we see over the course of the film that he was not being truthful about and yet he comes right back at you when you ask him about them with not a not a whiff of hesitation He's yeah. so cocksure about what he's saying and what he's because in his mind, I believe I'll say this in his mind, there's a bigger picture. There's a there's a greater truth that's yeah. in play that that's more important than than his own foibles. Right. Right. Again, that reminds me of someone, you know, a large figure in our political system. I guess when I came to realize that that's what it was going to be with Richard, that he wasn't going to say anything more. He wasn't going to go deep or he wasn't going to be self-reflexive or admit to certain things that we had documentation about. That's when I asked the producers to find more people. And the cast of characters that we started to interview and that are seen in the film grew so that I could learn more about Richard and his philosophies and offer counterpoints to how he presented himself. And that led to people like his second ex-wife, Kathleen, who's so kind of poetic and, and brilliant. Tim Pazensky, this teenager that, well, he's a grown man now, but when he was a teenager, Richard had is a kind of a crazy story. It's in the movie that Richard had tormented him and threatened. I mean, it was cra- it's a crazy story that Tim, the chapter involving that character, that's just not anything I, I would have ever known or could have dreamed about. It's so wild and weird. Also, of course, led to the woman with MS. She came yes. out of that. Yes. She worked at Richard's company and, and it's a very powerful story. And finally, Clifford Washington, the man who appears in the end of the film. Yeah. And also his son. Yeah, Matt. Matt is features prominently in the film in the sense of share some of his father's sensibilities. Some, yeah. I mean, Matt was very instrumental in making the film. He he really gave us access. And, you know, I think they're they're quite different, father and son, in a way. You know, Matt comes from a business background. So I think he was very business savvy. He created a business out of the ashes of Richard's company that was very successful. He never really goes into the depth of what he felt about certain things that happened in the story. I don't know how much we want to give away, but there is a death involving these vests. They seemed quite different to me, even if at the end of the line, maybe some of their actions had similarities. But Matt seemed a very different character. And his, his reaction to the film, I thought, was very positive, And I appreciated that. I think he's an interesting character. Yeah. He's a very smart man, Matt Davis. We're talking with uh, director Ramin Barani, and I want to let our listeners know that the film is now available at docnyc.net, and it's available to be viewed on their virtual platform. So docnyc.net, you can go there and watch Second Chance by virtue of that. And as we'll get into the other ways in which you can watch the film a little bit about the history of the film since its uh, debut. Let's talk a little bit about the journey that this film has been on. Premiered at Sundance earlier this year and then South by Southwest, mm-hmm. Hot Docs, and then um, Showtime picked it up. Bleecker Street will be releasing it theatrically across the country 
December 2nd, I think starting in, I think starting in New York and LA and then expanding to maybe 20, 30 other cities and then appearing on Showtime in uh, 2023. I also want to let people know that uh, your work includes such films as Chop Shop, Man Push Cart, Goodbye Solo, and many, many others. And one of the things that I've admired about your work, not only the the quality of the work, uh, the narrative work that you've put together over your career, but also how many people you have worked with, other filmmakers that you have helped along the way. And I believe you were, you've been a professor of film as well. So your legacy, and I've had a number of these filmmakers on over the years who have talked about your help and mentorship in, oh. in their films. And I just want to congratulate you as, as a aficionado of film and just just to see that your willingness to carry it forward to others. So, uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, I think I produced some films. I'm glad. I'm glad you spoke to those directors, like Alexander Morado, the Brazilian director who did Socrates and Seven Prisoners, and Alex Camilleri, who made Lutsu, was won a prize at Sundance, and most recently I have a Pakistani film I was an EP on called Joyland from a former student of mine that won the jury prize in Uncertain Regard in Cannes. But it's interesting, you mentioned my fiction films like Manpush Card and Chomp Chomp. They all came out of a lot of, let's say, journalistic research, you know, that you if I just been carrying a camera, I could have made documentaries out of them. And um, yeah. 99 Homes, for example, with with Garfield, Andrew Garfield, Laura Dern and Mike Shannon, again, came out of endless research. My first films include non-professionally trained actors, but even 99 Homes had has many real people acting alongside the professional actors, the star, the movie stars, I guess. Some of the scenes were shot in a very kind of real style, or a lot of my films have that feeling of naturalism or realism. And so I'm glad to have finally made a feature documentary film. There was a period of time, if I'm not mistaken, it was right around that time that Sean Baker was also making like Prince of Broadway and um, Take Out, other films that felt like there was this little hub of well, maybe not little, but a hub of filmmakers in New York City who were really doing some interesting and wonderful films. And I don't know where, when the Sotfi brothers came into the mix, but it seemed like that was that sort of the synergy of, of New York yeah. City was providing a lot of fertile ground for filmmakers. Yeah, there was also So Young Kim, Kelly Reichert, who is often up at Bard, not far from New York City, when she's not on the West Coast, I guess, in Portland area. The, you mentioned the reaction you got from Matt, his son, uh, Richard Davis's son. Has there been any other sort of interesting or provocative kind of reaction to the film? Has there been any pushback in the sense that this is such a, a fraught part of our society, law enforcement, gun, the gun culture, police reaction to, to um, policing where the use of gun becomes the first option as opposed to something else? Has there been any kind of a a sense of discussion around the film regarding regarding that, or is that too far of a stretch for this kind of? No, I, I think there there is, and there, I imagine when the film gets released in December and then um, on Showtime in in twenty twenty three, there'll probably be much more of a discussion. You know, we talked earlier. You you mentioned that you were happy the movie wasn't a takedown film, and and I was happy to hear that because I didn't really want to make that kind of a movie. I didn't want to go in there and make a, a film about what do I personally feel about guns and gun violence. I wanted to put forth these characters in this story and let audiences kind of come to their, draw their own conclusions about it. 
I've said before, I don't agree with majority of Richard Davis's philosophical beliefs or his moral beliefs, but I thought he should at least have a fair shot at presenting who he is. But I, I think it is a, it's part of the movie, gun violence, America, even that America came out of a very bloody mythology of itself. So I think there are all these are ways you could see the film. Absolutely. The, the mythology of the Old West is <clears throat> almost from top to bottom an exaggeration and or a lie about the you know what happened and the conquering of the West. It's so overblown, but it's so much a part of the fabric of this country that you, you'll be shouted down if you try to challenge it. And certainly, I, and, and I don't mean to say that that's what this film is, but it hints at this idea that shoot first, ask questions later. In fact, there's a part in the film where there's a reference to 25 cents in somebody's life. If you would describe what I'm trying, I'm hinting at here. Yeah, no, it's it's um, Aaron Wickenden. I'm mean, sorry, it's Aaron Westrick, the policeman who joined Richard's company and had been had an exchange with a in a in breaking and entering. He shot a, at a man, and the man shot at him. And he, Aaron said, the policeman said that his chief told him, his police captain told him, for twenty five cents, you could have saved us a lot of trouble. And I said, what does that mean for 25 cents? And he said, that's the cost of one bullet, meaning they were telling him, why didn't he just execute the guy and wait, save us a lot of time. And what's amazing is we meet that man in the end of the film that he shot at and that shot at him. It ends up being like nothing you could have expected. And that man, Clifford Washington, ends up being such a stark contrast to everything that Richard believes to be uncertain truth. And his Clifford's presence in the end of the film is some type of a glass of water in a desert. And he did it with so much humor and humility and, and wisdom. And, and so it was just amazing to find him and grateful that he said he would be in the film. It took him a while to want to do it, but I think he sensed he had something he had to tackle after 40 years of living with this thing of having shot someone. It's a wrenching part of the film. It's near the end of the film. And as always, there's so much to recommend about your work. And this is no exception. Uh, again, I want to remind people that Second Chance will be screening at the Doc NYC Film Festival. You can go to docnyc.com, I believe, and find out all the information. But it's uh, well worth your time. And also, there's the option of the virtual platform as well. Rami Balrani, thank you so very much. And it is truly, I'm so happy to be able to say welcome back to Film School Radio. It's been a while and I continue your good work. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to talking again soon. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music